Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door, and the person who enters through me will be saved. Jesus wasn't talking about a literal door. He was talking symbolically. But he was saying that if you want access to the Father, to God the Father, you have to come through Jesus. He didn't say, I am one door of many doors. He said, I am the door. He said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And he says, the way to the Father, the way to gain all access into heaven is to come through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to try to explain this the best I can today. And um, I'm going to have to define some terms, some Christian terms, if you're going to understand what Jesus meant by this, this uh, declaration that he is the door. So let's, uh, let's get started. Whenever a senseless murder happens... What is it our society demands? Justice. Thank you for playing. Families of murder victims uh, sometimes complain that they don't have any closure in their lives because the murderer has not been found. Justice has not been served. And uh, there's just this thing about our society that can't move on beyond some heinous crime until justice has been paid, until there's been appropriate payment made. And I want you to think about that term, appropriate payment. And just for grins, we're going to call it today atonement. Appropriate payment equals atonement because really they're the same thing. Atonement is satisfying the demands of justice when a crime has been committed. Now, every one of us naturally carries around this idea in our heads. If uh, as you're growing up and someone does something to you, you want them to be paid back. If a bully hits you, you want someone bigger than, than them to hit the bully. And then you feel like the bully has been paid. And if you think back to when Saddam Hussein was, uh, was captured and we found out about all of the mass murders that had gone on um, in, in Iraq, when he was brought to justice and hanged, we all had a sense of closure about that. And there's, there's most of us believe that um, Osama bin Laden should pay with his life for his acts of terrorism against innocent people. We have this idea of atonement, appropriate payment when, when a crime has been committed. Now, the second half of the, this central idea, the core idea of Christianity, comes out of a word we're very familiar with. It's the word substitute. What comes to mind when you hear the word substitute? Teacher, how well did you treat them? Not very well. When I used to coach Caleb's soccer team, whenever we would want to switch players, we would holler out, sub! And we'd have to holler it loud enough that the referee on the field would hear us. He would halt play just long enough enough for us to switch players. We're very familiar with the idea of a substitute. So to get to the central idea of Christianity, we're going to have to put those two words together. Substitutionary atonement. <clears throat> that means somebody taking the punishment of someone else when a crime has been committed. Are you with me? Substitutionary atonement. Now what I want to do is I want to walk you through the Bible and we're going to see how this idea of substitutionary atonement relates to your life and to my life. And we're going to start at the very beginning, the book of Genesis, with Adam and Eve. 
Shortly after God created them, he says to them, you're going to have this great life. You have free will. You, you've got brains. You've got this, this ability to make all kinds of choices. You're going to have a wonderful life. I love you. We're going to hang out together and we're going to do life together and it's going to be great. But you've got to remember, God says to them that I am a holy and a just God. And he says, if you disregard my commands... And if you run around and you do all kinds of things and blatantly disobey my commands and you shake your fist at me, I've got to let you know something, God says. This wonderful life that I breathed into you is going to come to a screeching halt. You will die. It's very, very clear. God leaves no doubt about this. And some of you know that Adam and Eve, they bought the lie from the devil and they blatantly disobeyed God. And all of creation now holds its breath wondering, what will God do? Will God strike them dead on the spot for their rebellion? Or will God kind of uh, wink and and say, well, um, apple eating is no crime for uh, capital punishment. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. I'm just going to turn my back and walk away on this one. Do you remember what God did? He didn't strike them dead immediately, but he didn't wink and walk away either. God brings Adam and Eve together and and he carefully explains to them, that because of their decision, all of this universe is now going to be sin-tainted. They had this all-access with God. They hung out face-to-face with God. And because of their blatant disobedience, they slammed the door shut on this relationship with God. And what they did simultaneously was they opened up this door for sin to enter into the world. And God explains to them that now all of creation is going to bear the scars of that one decision. Human labor is going to be affected. Childbearing will be painful because of that decision. Human relationships are going to be complicated by ego and power struggles. And these bodies that we live in are going to age and eventually they're going to die because of that decision that Adam and Eve made to allow sin to come into the world. And God explains to them that people who continue in patterns of rebellion and disobedience against God, they will pay for their sins. They will atone for their own sins forever in this life and forever in in the next life in a place called hell because sin is a serious, serious deal. But then at the end, end of the explanation, God says something that must have taken the wind out of Adam and Eve, who are hiding over in the corner, cowering in shame and guilt because of this choice that they made. Look what God says in Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made clothes out of animal skins for Adam and Eve, for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Here's a picture of an animal skin. Now, most people, when they read the Bible, they just skip over this and they go, oh, yeah, no big deal, but it is a very big deal. It's the first glimpse we have of the arrangement that God is designing to provide a way for sinners to have their sins paid for, to have their sins atoned for. You see, God's dilemma is He's an absolutely holy and just God. There is no sin in God. There is no imperfection in God. But at the same time, He's a tender and loving God whose heart has been captured by Adam and Eve, by these two in the garden, and by every human being who will follow. God has a dilemma. The thought of Adam and Eve atoning for their sins in this life and in eternity forever in a place called hell breaks the heart of God. 
So God takes upon himself the responsibility to provide an alternative way for their sins to be paid for. He cannot allow sin to go unatoned for, so he's got to do something. And so what he does is he comes up for this way where the guilty person can choose to have someone else's blood applied so the innocent dies and the guilty party goes free. God takes an animal. An innocent animal is just wandering around the garden and he kills it. And I want you to think about Adam and Eve. This is the first time anyone has seen death. They hear the screech of the animal. They see it writhing. They see it wrenching. They hear it bleeding. And they see the blood spilled on the ground. And finally, after all of that unnatural movement, the life leaves the animal. And then God skins the animal. And he takes it and he puts it around Adam and Eve. As if to say, in order for your sins your wrongdoings to be atoned for. An innocent third party has to die. Do you see here in Genesis, the very first example of substitutionary atonement, an innocent third party dies for the guilt, the sin of the person, and the guilty go free. Later on in the history of God's people, we read in Exodus the story of the Exodus. You know what Exodus means? It means exit. So in the book of Exit, we read about a big exit. And you've probably seen it on bad old TV movies. One of them is played every year around this time. You know what it is? The Ten Commandments. And it so poorly reflects Scripture. But anyway, God's people, the Israelites, are being held by the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are slowly working the Israelites to death. And this thing becomes a great, big, huge, sinful mess. And, and this pushes God's patience to the boiling point, to the breaking point. The Bible tells us that God is slow to anger, but if you push him far enough, his righteous wrath kicks in. And so God looks down and he says, enough, it is time for judgment. And so God sends word to all of the Israelites and all of the Egyptians that on a certain night, an angel of death is going to come down and he's going to circulate through the city. And he's going to take the life of every firstborn child in every household in the nations. The wages of sin is death. There would be no exceptions. But then God, almost as a PS, God says, but I will offer one option for any interested party. Anyone who locates a male lamb, an unblemished prize of the herd lamb, and slaughters it, and sheds its blood, and paints it on the doorposts, of the front of the house. When the death angel comes on that certain night, he will honor the blood of that lamb and will pass over that house so that whoever is in there does not have to pay for his own sin with the death of the firstborn. It's this whole idea of Passover. And God says, this is my arrangement. This is it. This is the only option other than death. You decide. And most people say, you know, I think that God isn't going to do jack. Most people said, I don't think God ever gets pushed to the point that his righteous wrath kicks in. I think that God just kind of turns his back. I think that we can live any way we want to and God's not going to lift a finger. But there's some people who said, you know, we believe that if God is God, he's loving and he's holy and he's just all at the same time. 
And sometimes his righteous wrath kicks in and sin must be paid for. And so some people decided to go out and get a lamb and they used its blood for paint. Here's some ruins from, uh, from the Holy Land and this is what it would have looked like when the blood was spilled and the doorposts were painted when the death angel came. And I want you to just think about this. Think about a 15-year-old. My son is 15 years old. Imagine if we had sheep out on the back 40. We had them in a pen and one night he sees me grab a knife and I walk out and I go and I look through the herd until I find the absolute best. And I take the lamb and I'm about to, to kill the lamb and, and Caleb says, Dad, why are you killing the best lamb? What did the lamb do? And I were to look at him and I'd say, Caleb, it's you or the lamb. A righteous God has said, enough is enough. Sin will be paid for tonight. Sin will be atoned for tonight. And, and Caleb, dude, it is the lamb or it's you. As a father, which do you think I'll choose? Which one do you think Caleb would choose? Kill the lamb, Dad. Kill it. We read the next day that every household that had offered up an innocent lamb sprinkled the blood on the doorpost on the front of the house. They were spared the judgment. The lamb died, but the sons went free. Every house where they did not kill the lamb, they did not spread the blood, they paid with the life of their firstborn child. Sin is serious. And when it's atonement time, sin will be paid for. Do you see the substitutionary atonement in the time of the Exodus? An innocent third party takes the hit for the guilty person and the guilty person goes free. <clears throat> Later on in the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system. This shows the idea of the substitutionary atonement as well. Here's a picture of an altar that has a ram on it. Pretty gory, isn't it? We're told in the New Testament that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Whenever a person in the Old Testament rebelled against God, they sinned of their own choice, then an animal sacrifice would have to be made. An innocent lamb would be slain. And only after the death of the lamb, the spilling of the blood, the offering of this lamb to God in place of the guilty sinner, then the priest would assure the sinner that their sins were forgiven and the guilty could go free. And there were literally tens of thousands of innocent lambs being slain all throughout the history of the sacrificial system. Every time you turned around, you'd see another lamb bleeding and dying, another sacrifice being made, and another guilty sinner going free. And then about 800 years before Christ, 800 B.C., a prophet comes on the scene. His name is Isaiah. And he said something that made everyone's head spin in Isaiah 53. He says, he was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. But the Lord gave him the punishment we deserved. And people did not know how to take this. This prophecy messed them up because it sure sounded like someday, somewhere, God was going to send a human sacrifice to make the ultimate atonement for the sins of the world. And people's mouths dropped open and they wondered how it could possibly be. They were thinking, wasn't the innocent killing, the killing of innocent animals, wasn't that bad enough? But now there's going to be an innocent human sacrifice for, of some kind. And they wondered, they wondered, who could it be? And they argued about who it would be for hundreds of years. 
You get to the New Testament and Jesus is born and he's born in the in amidst miracles and he grows up and there's all kinds of signs, indications that he is God's son. And when he's about 30 years old, one day he goes out to where another prophet is preaching, John the Baptist, and crowds are gathered to hear John the Baptist and Jesus approaches. John stops preaching and he points at Jesus and he goes, yo, everybody, check this out. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's right there. John was saying, the one we've been thinking about, the one Isaiah prophesied about, right there he is. He's the ultimate substitute for sin. He's the one that tens of thousands of sacrificial lambs have been foreshadowing all these years. And the people strain to understand. Just like some of you who are seekers here today, you're you're straining to understand what it is that I'm telling you right now. When Jesus began his teaching ministry, he began to refer to himself in these sacrificial terms. He would give a good talk and people would be patting him on the back and clapping and having a good time. Oh, what a great teacher is amongst us. And Jesus would say, now you got to know, not too long from now, I'm going to be pounded on a cross. And I'm going to be crucified, sacrificed for your sins. He said, I'm the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world so that guilty sinners can go free. And I'm telling you, people could not understand it. But sure enough, after leading a sinless life, because the ultimate Lamb of God had to be unblemished, you know, after living a sin-free life, Jesus was arrested, he was falsely convicted, he was beaten, he was battered. And then all of heaven looked on in horror as Jesus was nailed to the cross. And it happened outside the city of Jerusalem. You think Adam and Eve cringed when they saw death for the first time, that innocent animal be killed? You think the 15-year-old during the time of the Exodus cringed when he saw the innocent lamb being slain? Imagine what was going on in heaven as the innocent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, slowly bleeds to death in front of a group of gawkers who instead of bowing low to worship him for what he was doing, they're busy auctioning off his robe to the highest bidder. I bet there was some serious cringing and crying going on in heaven when Jesus, the innocent lamb of God, finally cried, It is finished. And I've told you before that God is a God of details. At the exact moment that Jesus is crying his last outside the city of Jerusalem on a cross, the priest is sacrificing the Passover lamb at the temple. And God is telling us, no more are there going to be animal sacrifices because my son has paid the ultimate price for sinners. And it just didn't seem right in heaven. The, the price seemed to be too high. Guilty sinners do not deserve a substitute like the one God offered. They ought to pay for their own sins. And you know what? We should. I should pay for my sins because I'm the one who's done them. You all deserve to pay for your sins because you're the one that's done them. We're the ones, we know God's rules and we break them. We're the ones when we ought to tell the truth we lie. When we ought to lift people up, we push them down. We're the ones who hate when we ought to love. We know the commandments and we disobey them blatantly. And we should be punished severely, but God offers an alternative. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son to be the ultimate sacrifice, to pay the penalty for our sins, to make substitutionary atonement for our sins. Do you see, do you grasp the core idea of Christianity? Jesus taking your place and mine, thereby satisfying the demands of justice so that guilty parties like you and me could go free. So that you and I could enter into a relationship with God forever. You see, the Bible tells us that you got choices to make. One choice gives you all access to God the Father. Every other choice leads you to destruction in a place called hell. Choice is yours. Every other religious system I've studied in the world is based on a different core idea. There is a different set of standards. There's a different door that you have to go through. And if you'll try hard enough and if you'll be a good enough person and if you'll work hard enough and if you'll be religious enough and if you'll give enough and if you'll sacrifice enough, then maybe, maybe you'll reach high enough, you'll raise your status high enough that maybe you can earn your way into heaven. Christianity is the only world religion whose core idea is the substitutionary atonement where guilty sinners go free on the merits of what God has provided in Jesus, His Son, who pays the price on our behalf. And it's an amazing thing. And then the Bible is very clear. It says on Judgment Day, the issue is not who is a sinner because that's going to be real clear real fast when you stand in the presence of a righteous, holy God. You're going to know who the sinner is. The deal is who makes atonement for your sin. In God's economy, sin will be paid for. The, the question is, who pays the tab? The Bible says between now and Judgment Day, you have to make a decision. If you say, I'm going to take the hit, I'll pay the tab for my own sins, then the Bible says you will pay that tab separated from God forever in a place called hell because sin is a big deal and it is your choice. But there's a, an option available to you. It's called substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ, out of love, saying, I'll pay your price. I'll take the hit for your sin. You, as the guilty party, based on my merits, can be free from all the consequences of your sin. You can be forgiven. You can be adopted into God's family. And you can enter into heaven all access for eternity. The choice is yours. Think about that as you watch this video.
Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, we are one with Him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. no accident that you are here today. God knew it. God knows all things and he knew you would be here. And I want you all to do something. You have two cards. One of them says the core idea of Christianity. Take that card out for me just a minute. I want everybody to do this together. There's a blank under this statement. I understand the core idea of substitutionary atonement. I get it. If you understand it, I want you just to write your name there. Just sign your name right there. And then under that it says when and where. For me, first time I got it was 1970, 30 years ago. Um, nope, 40 years ago, sorry. I can't do math. Some of y'all were thinking, huh? 40 years ago, I was sitting in a church in Borger, Texas on a Sunday night when I got it. I understood and I walked down the aisle and I asked God to apply what he'd done to my life. I was six years old. 
Where were you when you got it? And when was it? Now, if you don't, if you, if you don't get it yet, don't sign anything. And you might say, well, I understand now. I just got it. You just explained it to me. Well, then today is the date you put. April 4th, 2010, New Life Community Church. I got it. Take a few seconds and do that. Now, here's the second part. And this is just as critical. It's just as important that, that you understand this. The Bible says you can understand the core idea of Christianity and still have to atone for your own sins in a place called hell forever. Because the Bible says just understanding is not enough. You have to humble yourself and say, not only do I understand it, but I want it. I need it. I ask for it. I ask what Jesus did be applied to my life, to my sin. And I will place my trust solely in him for my hope of heaven after I die. You've got to ask for it. So the second thing I want you to do, write or initial there, where and when did that happen? When did you apply it? Because remember, the whole idea is appropriate payment must be made. And in the idea of Christianity, if the blood of Christ does not make your payment, then your payment is on your own head. So where and when did you get it? Some of you are going, I don't know. It might never have been applied. Then don't write anything yet. The great news is you can get that squared away right now. One of my favorite things about Easter is it's all about new beginnings. It's all about starting over. It's all about having all access to God the Father through what Jesus did on the cross, yes. But if he died and stayed in the grave, then, then he's not got power. Christianity is the only religion where the founder of our religion is not in the grave. We do not go to visit a grave where Christ is. Every other religion, you can do that, but not Christianity. Christianity is the only one where he busted open the grave and he's not there. And that one feat validates all of his claims to be the son of God. No other founder of any other world religion can compare to what Jesus has to offer. And if you're ready, say these words silently. We're going to put them up on the screen. I ask for Christ's atoning work to take effect in my life. I need it. I want it. I reach out for it by faith. I ask for it. Just take a moment and do that silently in your mind if you need to. Christ has promised to do that for you if you ask. Now, some of you, I know some of you are saying, this is hitting all too fast. I mean, my head's spinning. I don't even know what I'm doing here today. That's okay. Nobody would ever pressure you. You have to understand it's got to be genuine, so you just keep coming. You keep asking questions. You get involved in small groups. We don't have small group tonight, but we do next Sunday night and the rest of, of April. You come to a small group where you can ask all kinds of questions. We welcome questions. I love people to come to my small group and ask questions because I want you to know that Christianity is a thinking man's religion. There's no such thing as blind faith in Christianity. I've studied it. I know, but it's not enough for me to study it. I want you to have answers. You got questions, come on, bring them. We, we never shy away from answers. If you can't write that down, you just keep coming. It might be a week from now, it might be a month from now, it might be a year from now, but I believe if you keep coming, it's going to click and you're going to step across that doorway and be adopted into God's family forever. So just do that. Just If you know someone who you know they are not a Christ follower. Let's just bow our heads for just a second. And I want you to, by name, pray for those individuals. 
Would you do that? Let's pray. God, in your mercy, would you answer the prayers of your people? Father, you know that we started this church because we wanted to reach people that are far from you. And there are names written on the foundation, on the concrete here, even where we're sitting, all across this building. There are names written on the foundation. Some of them are sitting here in this service. They didn't even know their name was written, God. Some of them haven't come yet. But you know them all by name. And you love them enough to offer your blood to pay their price. And so, God, would you wake them up either right now in this service or give one of us an opportunity to talk to them about spiritual things in the near future because we know death is certain. We know that sin will be paid for. Atonement day is coming for every one of us. And, God, as long as I have breath, as long as you leave me on this planet, I'll keep telling people about the ultimate sacrifice that you made so that guilty sinners on your merits can go free. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.